You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. I say we just do it. Oh, you yeah. Know what I mean? That's right. Yeah, okay. So everybody, uh, go ahead. I got my Bobby in. Brown on, and we're, we're you know, it's, uh, yeah, we're... Okay, yeah. Try not to use as many outdated references. But. No, no, that's your prerogative, dude. That is my prerogative. <laughs> Bruce Carlson is with us today of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Bruce, hello, how are you? Hey, great to be on, Stephen and Chris. Hey. If I, if it is indeed Chris, <laughs> why wouldn't it? Oh, oh, oh! No you're trying to insinuate no you're insinuating that I'm Carl Diggler. Now, Bruce, the last time you were on, we were looking to the future and the real possibility of a contested convention. I know That's Chris right. and I are on the Republican side. On the Republican side, yes, 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 yes. Uh, I know Chris and I are both really bummed out that we're not going to see that this year. How disappointed are you? Uh, that we miss out on the contested convention this year. Oh, man, extremely disappointed. I mean, as the history politics podcaster guy, what an opportunity it would have been to have a brokered convention. And I think that it just would have been something where, where a lot of people out there would have been digging for information because it's been so long since it happened. Last second ballot, 1952 on the Democratic side. Adelaide Stevenson. So that is something that I think you'd you'd have to go to back to history for. So that was a little that was certainly uh, disappointed that there wouldn't be a ruckus in Cleveland um, as to what's especially good with this public. cast of characters, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, absolutely. Uh, I mean, and and if you go back to the last time Chris and I talked, I I think it was not only uh, possible, but it was. It was likely, it even seemed likely, because you had, Rubio was still in the race and actually saying to his supporters, you know, I'm going to go for a brokered convention, probably the first time ever, maybe since since Ronald Reagan, 76, where a candidate actually said that. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things Ronald Reagan kept clear in 76 when it was between him and, and uh, Ford was uh, he just kept it open. Oh, this is going to be a historic convention. Oh, there's never, never been a convention like this. And that was in his interest to drum up the convention because it was his chance. So you saw mm-hmm. a little bit of spark of that, and then it didn't happen. And at one point, Marco Rubio was actually selling hashtag never Trump hats. Has there ever been an occurrence where inside of a primary, inside their own party, they've actually been selling merchandise that's against someone else inside of their own party? Oh, I think that um, that the merchandise is is probably a little new. I go, in an episode I'm just about to publish, I, I go all the way back to 1896 when William Jennings Bryan secured the uh, Democratic nomination on a free silver plank. And even though, and this is often what people say about me, like, Bruce, you do this podcast, and you're always talking about old history. It's so old. It can't possibly apply to the the politics of today. And and there are indeed differences. We have to be careful about just applying history. But, you know, 1896 was a fairly modern time, and there there are a lot of the same dynamics in American political elections that go over and over again. One of the big things there was that you had these splinter movements like the Populist Party, the Grangers, and there was a group of Republicans, the Free Silver Republicans, who wanted to use both silver and gold money. William Jennings Bryan secures the Democratic nomination in an attempt to bring those groups together. Who he irritates doing that is the sitting Democratic president, Grover Cleveland, and what I would describe loosely as the eastern wing of the Democratic Party. 
and th these are sound money or people that want a gold standard and basically anti-inflation would be a quick way of, of describing uh, what was going on there and after a big economic recession in the early 1890s you know Brian swept that party's nomination they essentially kicked the sitting president out of the convention out of the the, the election really Grover Cleveland fought back and him you know, quietly behind the scenes he and some other groups within the Eastern Democratic Party started the National Democratic ticket they had their own convention they had their own platform and I presume they had pins and posters and the like these things happen within parties <laughs> not a strange um, 60, 1964 is another one that you would go to to find I say the largest group of people that are just unhappy with the party's nominee after a convention I mean really unhappy and to the point that you got senators saying well I'm not really running with him You've got uh, Romney, uh, Mitt Romney's father, George Romney in Michigan, encouraging voters to split the ticket and please vote for Lyndon Johnson. Don't vote for Barry Goldwater, but vote for me as governor. You have Hugh Scott in Pennsylvania, the establishment Republican of that time, really not addressing Goldwater, but not running with him, making sure he's not there during rallies. Uh, Romney does the same thing when Goldwater shows up to Michigan. Romney uh, exits before he arrives to the rally so he doesn't appear on the same stage. Uh, you have a lot of people adopting different types of strategies. Nixon at the time actually kind of eh, kind of hedging between the two, trying to help out Goldwater, but also not going full force for him so that he, do he doesn't alienate either group. You know, it's a little different in 76 when the Republicans split again because after Ford is nominated, now everybody is behind Ford. Uh, the, the, the rift hurt, but it it didn't – it wasn't as obvious and you didn't have people openly, publicly criticizing the nominee or openly in a blatant way sitting on their hands. What were the real ideological differences between Ford and Reagan in that 76 election? It was a strong uh, – some of them are the antecedents of – the conservative politics of today a big foreign policy issue was how strongly we were fighting the cold war whether there would be detente with the soviet union reagan was careful to always invoke kissinger and not ford when he was criticizing him during the primaries but it, the hint was obvious kissinger was uh, ford's secretary of state so how can you <laughs> how can you criticize him without implying that it's a uh, ford as well and mm. the policy of detente of sort of hey, this is the Soviet Union zone, this is our zone, let's try to avoid conflicts, and the like was not something Reagan was interested in. And uh, certainly on domestic policy, there was a wide, in terms of the amount of spending going on uh, in the government, uh, this was something that they had differences. And Reagan had, in the 70s, come out with a position on privatizing Social Security and wanted a great reduction in social programs, a reduction in government in general, that Gerald Ford, George Bush, other, what you might say, moderate Republicans uh, at that time would have considered wrong. Okay. Hey, I had another question, too. We talked, we've talked a lot about strategic voting, and I am of the opinion that people don't really do it, at least not in modern days. How did Romney's vote-splitting tactics with Goldwater work out for him? Uh, he won the governorship in Michigan, said it was a very direct and one of the most organized ticket-splitting campaign. In other words, it was not um, just hinted at. He sent out mailers to something like 200,000 uh, Democratic voters in Michigan uh, appealing to, to them, like, yes, we know you're going to vote for Lyndon Johnson, but please vote for me as governor. And the last time we talked, we did talk a bit about, like, there's a quote from, from I think, Lee Atwater. Uh, voters in primaries don't vote strategically. They're not about that. And, you know, that was one of these things where we could chess beat a bit because I think that was certainly true. If you look at the GOP side, they're not, they weren't picking Trump in those primaries. Because no, look at Kentucky, best, uh, right? Best election. That, 
the, the buried lead in Kentucky is that Trump didn't even get close to 50 percent in the in the primary. And he was the only guy running. Rand Paul was doing a little bit of this uh, activity there. Uh, yeah, and I think some of the campaigns, even though they've ended their campaigns, there's still a little protest vote. Yeah, certainly uh, there are some people who aren't happy with this ending, the way that the race ended. Uh, and obviously there's a lot of people who didn't vote for Trump in those primaries because of the number of candidates. But if you wanted to give him a black eye... You would have went there in Kentucky and said, oh, so you think that you got this locked up? Well, we're going to hand you a loss, and so it's going to be a little bump in the road. It's not going to change anything, but at least kind of, you know, gives Trump an elbow on his way to the nomination. Yeah, I think it just would have been strategically difficult because it's hard to get voters to – voters do not like to waste a vote, uh, and so they want to vote for someone that they care about, uh, but if – there's nobody actually running that that does become hard i mean gosh if he lost any of those primaries after cruz stepped out uh, and after the everything consolidated for trump that would have been a real black eye that's tough to pull off you can do a little protest vote maybe even a high percentage i don't know what it would have been but i'll tell you this is also a little different election in that trump you know is pretty good at spinning the next day uh so <laughs> even that might have been oh you know people can I just don't. I'm not well liked in Kentucky. Oh well. Nothing sticks to this guy. Has there ever been a politician quite like Donald Trump, where nothing sticks to him? I I tend to think that that things are sticking, will stick, depending on the size of the electorate and the group of people actually participating in the election. But the the media is very interested in Trump, and uh, it's it's a little new. You know, look, you know, uh, my history can beat up your politics. There's a podcast we talk about history and we bring context to the events of today it doesn't mean that there aren't new events occurring and in this election isn't something maybe even a little crazy you know so i do think he's a little new in this respect there have been candidates who have benefited publicly from the media kind of liking them being good for their business it also tends to coincide with a little bit of popular support so that the media the media form wants to put them on you know you could reasonably say obama was getting some of this in 2008 i wouldn't go as far as saying it was a historic moment there but it it was certainly because of the nature of, of who he was and and the barrier he was breaking through that there was a lot of media coverage william jennings bryan in 1896 i was speaking of earlier when he got the nominations again in, in 1900 and 1908 of the Democratic Party, especially by 1908 when he was getting a little older and the act was kind of getting a little worn, but I think a lot of party officials were just like, with Brian comes the newspapers, and you just can't beat it. We'd have to spend a lot of money to get the word out there. And with Brian comes the newspapers, they the, the people get excited about seeing him speak, and it's good for – it's good for the media, even of that time, to cover. Um, in 1896, Thomas Edison is one of the people enthralled by William Jennings Bryan's campaign. He's one of the first candidates to actually go on train stops and speak, and they'd be huge crowds, and they just loved hearing what he had to say. And his, his speeches were things like about burning the towns down and you know and 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 hanging people on a on a cross of gold and and really like biblical tough kind of images and and that you would almost have in a sermon and people like this thomas edison's one of these people enthralled he brings his video camera just to film this like a phenome of his time you know so certainly there's a person kennedy in 1960 is pretty close (laughs) and i know it sounds great comparing trump to kennedy like what but in this way their ability to kind of enthrall the media a bit made something super political about them. So like in Kennedy in 1960, he was going to malls and and there were a lot of like women going kind of crazy over Kennedy and just big crowds, young people. You know, um, there were jokes about the, the women voters and he, uh, obviously a lot of women voters went for Nixon. It might have even been a majority in 1960. But the buzz, the gener, you know, from him being this kind of young and handsome and charismatic guy 
It created something that had nothing to do with the political issues that races before would have been fought on. And that's kind of similar to Trump in invoking some of the reality TV, the entertainment, the wrestling, <laughs> everything that he's been a part of and bringing it into politics. So it's not just about I really respect his position on taxes or I don't. Trump doesn't even really have clear positions on a lot of these things. They, or, or if he does have positions, they are, as he says, just suggestions. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that there's a few candidates. In, so he has some of this. There's a few candidates in history that could do this, kind of turn the election to an extent because they're able to do something again, like kind of super political. Uh, Reagan had a little bit, you know, when he was coming into politics in the 70s, certainly when he ran for governor in California in the 60s, he was a movie star. And more to that, he was a TV personality. The movie star stuff was in the 40s. He was a TV personality all through the 50s and, and a little bit into the 60s. And he was very well known. And then the guy's running for president. So it created this new dynamic. And a lot of traditional politicians, Gerald Ford, Tip O'Neill, have like very negative comments about this about and their opinion of Reagan is very uh, lightweight. Oh, Richard Nixon felt he was an extreme lightweight. That's why I didn't one of the re many reasons he didn't pick him for VP in '68. I mean, this, this guy's a lightweight, but they bring something different to the politics, and there's votes in that. For Trump, I think the open question is going to be if that was just a function in the primary, or if he has this if this charisma is going to have any kind of effects in the general election. It's interesting you bring up the Reagan comparison because it almost is like to compensate for being perceived as a lightweight and being an outsider, Reagan tacks really hard to the right. And that is what Trump did to establish validity inside the Republican Party as well. He was just, all right, you think I'm a lightweight or you think Trump's not serious? I'm the most serious guy here. I'm going to build a giant wall. Well, I think that's it. I think that there was always this small group in the Republican voter base that were extremely conservative on certain issues. And you hit the one. The immigration is one of the most important because, they, you know, as I'll always say, it's, it's, it almost fits everything else. Why is the economy bad? Because we're, we're letting too many people in. You know, what about national security? Well, if we close the border, that'll help national security. Just fits a lot of different things. You know, my wages aren't 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 high enough. There's wage inequality. Well, I can solve that as a as a the, the best Republican way to solve that is not to interfere with the government because that gets controversial. But we can do it by building a wall. And that issue is so important for this small percentage. I think maybe 15 percent that Republican electorate. That immigration issue is the strongest. They're, they're actually will go out and fight for it. They will go to protests and, and fight for it. And um, that was his base. And it was a small base, obviously connected to the birthers, uh, because he was involved in that too. Uh, more, probably more conservative than your average Tea Party. And that's what he started with. He built hmm. from there. But that's what he started with. And you're absolutely right. Rock solid on kind of bedrock conservative principle, you take this really tough position and there was nowhere for Cruz or Jeb Bush or Rubio to go. Just like in foreign policy where Trump was like, I'm going to bomb the hell out of them. We need to demean them, which is actually a thing that he said at a campaign rally about the terrorists. We need to demean them. There, once you say you're going to commit war crimes and violate human rights, there isn't anywhere further to all due respect to conservatives, to the right of that. There, there isn't another position further than that other than, I don't know, I'm going to burn them all alive and skin their families. And I think certainly that Reagan was similar in this way, that he, once he, he came out really hard against Kissinger's policy, who's the a Republican Secretary of State, you know, who in a primary was going to get to his right? Nobody. Once having consolidated the right, you then move center a little, you try to soften, Reagan was able to do it. Now, compare and contrast, I think Reagan is you know, had, is very different from Trump in that one of the things about Reagan, you can talk to anybody, opponents, family, friends, political enemies, what have you, everybody. Well, Trump can too, he just insults them. Right, right, but I mean, if you talk to those people, you'll... you'll oh, you mean get along with them. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Trump doesn't do that. 
thing people will say about Reagan he's immensely polite. All of his conservative issues were voiced with jokes and stories and smiles. It, it's very opposite to the style and to the that end of the values uh, that that Reagan had. It's very different from Trump, but in terms of what he's doing, in terms of the media and what he's doing within the politics of his party, very there's a similarity there. Uh, now, there was an event that happened this past week that I want to get into because I'm curious about the historical significance of this. Sure. Uh, Donald Trump uh, did a fundraising event in New Jersey. It wasn't for him or his campaign, supposedly. This fundraiser was to help cover Chris Christie's uh, campaign debts. (laughs) Which seems odd. That's so Uh, humiliating. It's, uh, you know, it does happen. Um, It's not even just a history thing. It's a pretty common event. Some of it's a little under the radar in that people are always... They, they incur campaign debts, and then they need to do fundraisers to get Wouldn't out of it. would you name it something else, though? Like, don't people normally name it something not that, the not bail out Chris Christie because his campaign <laughs> sucked fundraiser? <laughs> right. I mean, uh, the the Chris Christie, the, it's such an interesting thing there because the, 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 the scenes of Chris Christie and the way that he looked at Trump once he had oh. lost the primary and agreed to uh, – to, to that, I think is just going to be etched in my mind forever. But uh, you know, and there of course was the hashtag that you know, free Christie, and uh, Christie's been kidnapped, and you had people who who absolutely hate Chris Christie politically, and but were saying like, look, there's no reason to kidnap the man. That's not right. You know, we we got to free him. You know, there were there was almost a a group of of liberal Democrats willing to break him out. You know, mm-hmm. if he was indeed kidnapped, and but. It was just uh, – I, I think that's been a, uh, an interesting story, but Christie has a history of this. I really think where Governor Christie comes from in, in, in New Jersey is from – he was a key fundraiser for the Bushes. Mm-hmm. By the way, he kind of – there's sort of a little bit of a, a flip on that, right? Um, and so this guy doesn't stay long, your friend, you know. And then he uh, became U.S. No, he goes Canada. which way the wind blows, doesn't he? Because yeah. he did this, he does this with Obama, and he hugs Obama and blows a ton of political capital inside of his own party, hugging Obama, and arguably scuttled his chances of winning or doing well in this primary. Is that in Bridgegate? But like the hugging Obama thing didn't help, and then now he is, you know, sucking up to Trump. Well, he, you know, I guess you could you could admire, you know, talk about somebody doing the last play, the last play, like kind of the onside kick and keep the game going in the last thirty seconds. Because, it, as I say, you know, his his, his he started as a then he then he became U.S. Uh, attorney for New Jersey, appointment by the President Bush. Then he became governor. Then, uh, as you say, to get reelected, he was enormously helped by the appearance with Obama and Obama was helped by that i believe too it was like kind of a rare by these days a bipartisan moment like that is is so rare you know and now right going back pretty far from the hug you know uh no he couldn't get away from that fast enough right like he i mean he hugged obama and then he's just burying the guy and it's like well i mean dude either the guy really helped you out and he was a friend in that moment, and like he was a fellow countryman. Or you think he's, you know, a dog turd? No, that was 2012, and now it's, uh, you know, now there's an opportunity for him in being a very powerful player within a Trump presidency. Should that occur? Oh yeah, he could be attorney general. Do you think he's a vice presidential candidate? I don't think so, but I don't know, and uh, I don't think it's very. It's a very meaningful choice. He's extremely unpopular right now in his own state, so he's not going to help you in New Jersey. Um, a lot of people in the party don't like him because he ran. If he didn't run, there's a possibility there. But the fact that he run ran for president himself angered a bunch of other Republicans. And then, because uh, you have to remember, he was originally, before they thought this Trump was coming, he was the anti-Cruz, anti-Ram Paul candidate. So that group's against him. You don't you don't bring those guys back with with a Chris Christie pick. So it'd be very silly to do it. It, it. Besides that, it's just so obviously telegraphed that this guy's in his corner. Boy, that would be a real dud in Cleveland. I mean, uh, it, that's my feeling about it. So who do you who are you leaning towards? Yeah, do you see somebody for Trump? 
I'll put on my MAGA, red MAGA hat for uh, for a moment and be the advisor to the Trump campaign. I'll give you my I'll give you what I think is the best politically, my strategy, and then what probably best is I think you need someone to be the attack dog. Actually, by the way, I would say this for both sides. You need someone to be this attack dog role. Now, I know what people are going to say. Trump's his own attack dog. This is very new, by the way, in politics. This is where it is a little new. Hard to, at top of the ticket to be their own attack dog, to be a person that just every day will be out there attacking the, the, the opposition and taking it to them. But you know what? I don't think it's a viable general election strategy. He's got to get to center. If he has any shot of this thing, he's got to calm down a bit. I know this is going to be tough. But you're not going to be able to just let the other side have a free ride. So you bring in somebody who has a little fight. Jody Ernst, senator from Iowa, she is not going to let down. I would say Carly Fiorito, but she is far from available no. for this role. No. Um, as to who he will, see, that gets into these party politics. And uh, yet, here's an, here's an interesting thing about somebody like a Trump. Trump is a, is, is, is a person that's in control of a lot himself. So that type of person tends to pick a weaker type VP uh, or someone that will just help I think he made a comment about I'm going to help somebody that will help with the Senate maybe picks a Republican senator that's willing to do it You know, I wouldn't go with one of the primary opponents you go with Cruz, you go with uh, I don't think Kasich is willing to do it you go with Cruz or you go with Rubio it's just going to look so bad for everything he's done up until then and I think it'll be the Bad moment for the campaign. Well, you you said that uh, he might go with someone not attack dog like. I was going to suggest how funny it would be to try to watch Ben Carson become a t an attack dog, but <laughs> even though he was a primary candidate, uh, yes, you, you have to keep ben people Carson awake in order to really effectively no. attack. I don't. I don't think that Ben Carson's a good option because you remember when I was talking a little bit earlier about like that ten fifteen percent. I think is is where his well, you know, I, I kind of put in the same as the birther group and i know not every ben carson person was a, a birther that's i it's not that but it's a similar kind they're pulling from a similar group you know this is a bad time to do venn diagrams but if we were to do a venn diagram it would be pretty <laughs> now, close would you have birther. gun owners outside of all americans if you were going to do a venn diagram <laughs> yeah so i mean of course we're referring to that hillary clinton uh Venn diagram with the uh, the gun owners and the Americans and intersecting the middle, right? It's like, it's, uh, uh -huh. you, fortunately, the, for for everyone in, involved and for the for the republic, you know, it, being able to do a Venn diagram is is nowhere, you know, uh, in the in the Constitution as one of the one of the requirements for the for the presidency. In fact, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I want a president doing a lot of uh, Venn diagram. Venn diagrams. Well, and no, I imagine another hobby. I imagine that most people uh, actually understand that that was not Hillary Clinton making that Venn diagram to begin with. It was someone on her staff. But that said, I, my favorite of the Venn diagram, making fun of the Venn diagram, was people who understand how to make Venn diagrams. That's one circle. Hillary Clinton staffers, that's another circle. They don't meet. <laughs> It speaks to an issue of marketing that has dogged this campaign throughout, like, you know, the woman card thing that we talked about that was kind of a questionable tactic. But even down to her H logo, which has an arrow which goes to the right. Yeah. It, it's I, I stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, I was, wasn't a big fan of the, the logo. I will say that even that's not new. I, f I thought it was new, actually. I thought this was a new recent thing with, like, Obama and a couple other people in 08 doing this, like, kind of symbols. Found that in Ronald Reagan's uh, re-election for, for governor of California in 1970, he had an RR, but the R's were almost like a Rolling Stone R. Or, or feel like slick R, just RR. And they would hand those out. No message. And, and so it's it's... It has been out there. Um, it's little new, though. Yeah, the the maybe not so good with the designs. Maybe not so much uh, with the designs with the uh, Clinton campaign. Because um, I get it, though. It's H moving forward, but uh, you know, <laughs> I think maybe a rocket right. ship or something would have been up. I would have had the arrow going up. Yeah, so you turn like one no. of the vertical into uh, 
an arrow. Yeah. Yeah, or have the arrow kind of in the background behind the H, so the H is there, and then the arrow is rising up in the backdrop of the H. Now, Something like that. I, I, I am actually a little sad that I didn't ever see this happen. I, I kind of wish that uh, after uh, the artist Prince had uh, passed this year, it would have been nice. Hillary gets a symbol. She yeah, just no, well, not, refers not to just herself Hillary only a in a symbol. Turn one him. of the vertical posts into the artist formerly known as Prince symbol. So you have an H, but one of those one of the bars is made up of the Prince symbol. That would have been a fun, mm. weird picture, but that didn't exist. I, d- I like I like the general premise of going with a symbol with no linguistic equivalent. But the artist you know, formerly known as Hillary Clinton, right? There's an and 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 we could figure out what it would be. Maybe it would be some doves or something like this. But but going with the H, or you might as well just go with a full slogan. I would have went just full on hope poster, like just totally go for the Obama legacy. Same thing. Okay, guys, it's it's sixteen, same as oh eight. Get with the program. Let's go. Hope poster. Put it up. We're done. <laughs> What's the word then? Instead, of, it can't be hope again. What, 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 one more years. Again? That's how boring I think incumbent parties need to be historically. <laughs> by the way, this idea of uh, presidential campaigns being exciting all the time, like everything's a crusade. No, on the opposition side, you you better. Incumbent party campaigns. Sometimes it's just like the old Woodrow Wilson. You know, he kept us out of war, even if he doesn't really want to run on that he everything's okay guys stay the course stay the course Mm -hmm. toe the line like 1988 you know incumbent party campaigns actually you don't want to you don't want too much crusade you want to make the choice about you well you don't want to you don't want to more more of the same but you want to do like right keep the keep the car going down the road folks Mm -hmm. so let me ask you this with orange hair on the truck yeah so did more hope. Hillary did Hillary Clinton trying to embrace the historicity of being the first female president kind of get herself in trouble considering she's got this historic level of unfavorability at the same time? Would it have been safer for her to just been like, I am a continuation of the Obama administration, which people kind of more or less like? Right. I think you want to let that happen. Uh, when you're a candidate who has a certain identity, I mean, look at Obama in the previous election. You don't want to be saying that yourself. Right. Uh, you definitely, the more you do that, it won't work. Not on a stick to, to have surrogates use it or have this, this is going to be an issue, um, this is going to be a positive for her. But again, you know, it's that, it's that using it obviously. And then just, we're in a, we're in a zone, I think right now in politics where just everything's contentious. So any, thing you come out there with on a Tuesday is going to be debated about until Wednesday and then there's a new Twitter to be angry about you know so I think that uh, but yeah definitely it's going to be a it's going to be an election point I just think that should be implied uh, women outvote men in a lot of presidential elections um, they don't always vote not every group of women votes Democrats so that's something to think about too but it's certainly not a bad idea to uh, go after the women vote uh, but making it your slogan, you know, versus doing actual things is is problematic, I think. And what about the unfavorability for Hillary? Where does it's a, that it's an issue? Her? Yeah, it's an absolute issue. I'm one of those people that tends to think, and I guess everything for me is you know, it's history. I've been watching a lot of campaigns and seeing a lot of things. She's a historical person in a sense, right? I mean, she's been around a while. I mean, 20 years ago, her husband was running for re-election, right? Very contentious, too, during the Clinton presidency, a lot of politics. And so I, I guess I see things more in that context, and I, I see it as the the collective scar tissue, if you will, of of a lot of campaigns and a lot of attacks. And, you know, if it's, if it's aimed at Bill Clinton, it was still... She, that's a partnership that everyone, every American is aware of. So it's not like, it's not like uh, everyone's separating the two. You know, it's Hillary Bill. They, the Clintons is the phrase you hear frequently, and they're just always been controversial. When they're a president, this is a, this is a president who was elected in a uh, when, when you know when she was in the White House. Bill Clinton was elected president in '92 with in a three-way vote. We can't forget that. He was always kind of in the early time 
questioned as kind of a legitimate president or not. So it was a lot of scraping and fighting. It was everything was difficult. Much different for the Obama presidency, even though Obama logically was the next Democratic president, but much different situation. When he got reelected, it was a three-way two. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit more convincing win. It was always tough in the Clinton presidency, I think, for them. Uh, it's something that historically, I think, Democrats now, when I view what some of the some of the opinions and the like, they're probably not aware of how much of a fight it was back then mm. or they don't want to be aware who cares i'm i want my issues and i want them now right i don't i don't i don't i don't care about compromising word or even um moderating anything i do because it's a hard fight but if you go back to that time it wasn't just a hard fight i mean their very existence was being you know especially after the 94 midterms i think the democratic party was one of these classic times where People said, oh, my God, that could be the end of the party. You know, we're going to knock off Bill Clinton from the presidency in 96. And then it's going to be, you know, all GOP in Washington for some time. Didn't quite happen that way. Never does. But it was talk about that. So that's the uh, that's where I I tend to think is a lot of what's what's driving the unfavorables um, and a little more of a historical perspective She's been in presidential politics a long time. Long time, yeah, and and she's associated with, obviously associated with Bill and many other people who also have been involved in campaigns and have uh, negatives. So it's a tough race because you got this is this is a first sort of to have two candidates with high unfavorable, um, but it's no doubt it's a challenge. Yeah, it would be better if the uh, if she didn't have them. <laughs> Um, well, I, I think that's fair to say. How much would you say her favorability to... rating is being hurt by the Democratic National Convention itself seeming to try to hand everything to her? And I bring this up because of what happened in Nevada. Sure, sure. sure. <laughs> Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, uh, I, think general, the, I guess I'd be more general and say that the, the primary itself, the, the can, what's become kind of contentious primary, is not good, especially for an incumbent party. See, generally, 
in, in, in American presidential elections, incumbent party is supposed to have things under control. This is why, like, 1968 was terrible for the Democrats. I mean, they, they were the party in control. They have the White House. That's You can't have a convention like that, uh, and you can't even have a primary like that. You know, it's supposed to be nice handovers, like, here you go, uh, Gore, you're going to be the nominee, or here you go, uh George H.W. Bush, you're going to be the nominee after Reagan. You know, that's what incumbent parties are, are supposed to be doing. And when it's contentious, there's no way, in my view, and I think a, a lot of political science scientists that I follow and journal articles I read have the view that, you know, if you're an incumbent party and that's going on, it's just, you're just begging for voters to ask, well, if you guys can't get it together, did you really, are you really in control of the country? You could have a eight other things that might occur that will erase that question in voters' minds, like a great economy or big foreign policy success. But it's it's an issue. It's an issue. And, yeah, I think it's generally because you have a uh, – look, I mean, Bernie Sanders got a good chunk of delegates. I mean, a lot of support. The growth, a significant group of the Obama coalition, um, which would be – like if, 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 if the Obama coalition was, uh, say um, – minority voters, women, and young voters. That young voter is – Bernie's got them, so he's got at least a, a part of the triad of the Obama victory. That's a real problem. Mm. And that's some of the um, – sure, I think that's some of the negativity. I think she's always had unfavorables, though, and that's something to think about. And a, a good election can change a lot of things, but – I don't know what else to say except because it's so unique in that the ball's up in the air on this unfavorability in this one. You got two nominees with high unfavorability. Um, well, also, I'm not sure how you totally avoid it. You know, well, there's no nominee that's I think has this great pristine. Oh, this person must be president now. That they no, would. And that's, I, I I would say. Let me ask you this then, um, because you mentioned two different uh, points at which the presumptive nominee was the vice president prior to that and therefore the party was easy, it was easy to hand it over would we have this contested convention issue well no it's not going to be a contested convention but the unfavorability rating of hillary clinton and the troubles if joe biden had jumped into the race would the party have been likely to try to hand the keys to him or would they see well let's let's see what happens between Hillary and Joe I think that the uh Sanders challenge wouldn't be as strong against Biden I think if Biden um if the if you're asking if if Hillary sort of like stayed out and it was just Biden and then would uh, would a Biden as a candidate have high unfavorability probably not No no and, he'd be uh, likable but a general election, by the way, is something to consider here. Uh, uh, don't don't be fooled by that too much. I mean, I think a, a good month or two months of of, of a general election, uh, conversations change, and all this enormous um, gratitude everyone has in the in America now for the service of Joe Biden would turn into something else once he becomes the candidate. That's what happens. You know, yeah. I I used to tell people, why don't people hate John Kerry right now? And and they say, yeah, that's right. I don't hear much about John Kerry, but in '04 he was a he was attacked, you know. And it's mm -hmm. similar with John McCain. Like people have all this respect for John McCain, except in '08 when he got on the ballot, and then Democrats savaged him at that time and all the things he did wrong. And by the way, I used to use that example. And then John Kerry became Secretary of State and, and started to enter the target zone again. So when you're <laughs> you know, look, politics is about power. I mean, well, let, let's not kid ourselves. And it always has been. And if you enter the um, the race, uh, you're you know, you're you're subject to to attacks like this. If you ask me straight out my 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 view about this unfavorability question, I'm probably one to tell you. I th I think you can land the plane with turbulence. I think you can get elected with unfavorability. I just think that it's a fight. Uh, elections are always going to be a fight. There's always going to be some uptick in the unfavorability uh, of a candidate during a general election when they're getting attacked on all fronts. By the other side, the bad parts are going to be seen. Sometimes with a very new candidate, you know, it might be even more troubling because the revelations are new and shocking uh, mm -hmm. versus the one thing I can say about Clinton. I, I do wonder if there's a bit of – I don't know if I'm going to say this definitely, but just sort of speculate about it. Is there inoculation theory to be had here that – there's so many attacks over the years that it's like, yeah, yeah, we know about that. We know. Is Trump's going to amp it up?
I like to use the term with her maximum saturation because I think it rather than it being immune, I think it definitely burdens her. And there are some people who are like, I will never vote for Hillary Clinton because I just absolutely do not trust her. That's why I kind of like the term saturation. I want to go back to a couple of things, though. It, it's um, possible. It's possible. That's a so, theory. This is all I think. I think even with all my magic knowledge of history, what you <laughs> I think it's it, it can only be a theory on that front. We'll, it's one of those we'll see. Yeah, we'll see what happens with that. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, so, this, this, this primary has been a, a, a revelation in terms of what we've always known doesn't necessarily mean that's what's always going to happen. Right. Okay. Sense. No, so, it does. It absolutely. The... Absolutely. This is one where this actually like gives you second thoughts about history sometimes, but I've never been that absolute, so I don't worry about it. I sure. always use history to understand a bit, not to not to rule the day because just because something happened in seventy two doesn't mean it's sixteen. It's the same thing. All right. So uh, sorry, Chris. You were trying to get back to yes. So going back to Democratic primary voters and primary votes in the last four elections or so, you had like Bill Bradley and largely Bradley averaged around thirty to forty percent of the vote and didn't really put up much of a protest candidacy against Al Gore. Al Gore was seen as sufficient and like good enough for the party that the party liked him. Howard Dean was actually picking up a lot of steam before the Dean scream and then the intense coverage of the Dean scream, and we can get into all of that. It all seems quite like a trifle given you know who's running for president right now and you know, the characters that we have these days but that submarine dean although he was actually picking up some steam ultimately the party decides was able to you know rally around john Kerry. in 2008 the whole party decides theorem for the democrats really started to fall apart obama actually picked up enough insurgent energy that he derailed hillary clinton And when Hillary Clinton stood down at the end of the primaries in 2008, they had a meeting before the convention. And largely what is believed to have come out of that meeting is that Hillary Clinton called her shot and got to be the secretary of state for Obama. Now, I think what would be interesting going back to the unfavorabilities is that what if Hillary Clinton had chosen to be Barack Obama's vice president? Would that have maybe put her in a safer position, um, particularly in the wake of Benghazi, in uh, a less risky position to sort of just glom on to the coattails of Obama and ride out as the nice steady wave? But Hillary Clinton wanted to have her own identity on this stuff, and so she chose the more perilous path um, with not necessarily as much reward either, or not immediately clear reward, in Secretary of State. Uh, and I think at the end of her tenure as Secretary of State, I, I don't... I have a hard time looking at it as an asset, right? And so then we go to this primary process with Bernie Sanders where let's if Bernie Sanders had had the African American vote in these primaries, Bill, Bernie Sanders would have knocked off Hillary Clinton. And so I think part of the issue is that the Democratic Party is not effectively taking the temperature of their base anymore. And I don't know if it's a deliberate thing where they don't want to meet their needs of their base or if they just simply don't have good data as to what voters actually care about these days. Well, well, a lot there. Uh, I think that, uh, that you're right to an extent. I mean, that, 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 that's true is obvious with the results of the primary being more contentious. The percentage of delegates that Bernie has, I mean, I don't think it's going to be enough to win a nomination, especially uh, – Jersey and California come in, uh, you know, I think that uh, still it's a that is a large chunk. And you have to almost go back to I mean, I'm almost thinking of 1980, uh, which was which was a deadly one. So you don't want to use that example if you're if you're gunning for the if you're uh, rooting for the Democrats, I should say, um, going for the Republicans. Um, I think you don't want to use the example of 1980, but that's but there's that's no John Anderson happened. either. No, no, but I'm referring more to the primaries where oh, yeah, yeah, challenge yeah, yeah. against Carter was, was just deadly, even though it did get resolved at the convention. It was not a contested convention, but it was contentious, and there was procedural attempts, which I, which I suppose are still possible in this situation. But 
that's the the main point is yeah I mean I think that the Sanders challenge went farther than anyone thought it would someone could have read the early polls for Elizabeth Warren and read in that that there would have been a strong group and my feeling is that Sanders has kind of always just sort of been building up to getting that group the ones that were in polls saying they wanted Elizabeth Warren to run and and he's got it now you know maybe in the beginning it was like I don't know who Sanders is and I, and he slowly but surely started building that up with the movement that he has much more depth at uh, social media I mean the logo thing we talked about but there's a lot of other issues uh, where you know it's just more debit using social media social media exists now which didn't exist in other democratic primary efforts that's a major factor by the way um well donald trump says that owning a twitter is better than owning your own newspaper which is actually horrifying when you think about a newspaper and what donald trump thinks a newspaper is supposed to be doing (laughs) what you used to have to do for some of these primary efforts and this is where that party support really helped but there were candidates like carter or mcgovern or Goldwater that did develop pre-internet uh, insurgent campaigns. So it the I'm happen. with Jimmy videos. Yes, I'm with Jimmy or an, an aggressive male finding of people. It still requires a lot of organization then that now can be done faster, more efficiently. That cu- that question cuts both ways though. That technology question because it because it on one hand it's. It, it, you're saying like, wow, this is there's more of an ability to challenge an incumbent. Does that lead to a question of, wait a second, are we going to see in almost every year now, even an incumbent party's sort of designed nominee um, being challenged in a more aggressive way? Because all you have to do is send some tweets and there's a rally, you know, which which much more difficult to organize. You needed labor support. You need to know who the head of those unions were. You, to, to reach like people who are making you know uh, minimum wage or below to get them organized, you know it wasn't just simply hey there's going to be a rally tomorrow at this spot everybody meet you know it's a lot more phone chains, a direct mail, a lot more difficult. And does that mean that possibly this is either a deadly challenge that's occurring in the Democratic Party right now and really good news for the Republicans, or we're just seeing this kind of like phenom of oh well you know we're going to see more of this now. Uh, it's easier now than it used to be. Bill Bradley had a hard time challenging Gore, but if he had if he had Twitter, you know, might have been the same thing. I Chris, I, I would say uh, going back to Hillary Clinton's choice to go for Secretary of State versus Vice President, it was a gamble, but I can see why she would do it. She was gambling on foreign policy not really changing during her time as Secretary of State. If that had happened, if that things was had not just a great status cable. quo. That really was not a great cable. No. Iraq was winding down. Clearly things were in flux. I would have two points on that. One is I, I, I do tend to agree with Steve in that, uh, that if it was her pick, it was, it was a good one. We'll, we'll put it this way. She couldn't pick nothing if she was inactive for eight years just being a, a senator or a former senator. I agree. She'd be out of the White House and – and no claim to the to the party mantle. I actually do think there's a little more of Obama's choice in that. I'm not saying that there wasn't party political pressure as any nominee Trump will even even face in his choice. But uh, I tend to think that was um, uh, I know like Jonathan Alter the promise like he's pretty big on that point. This was Obama basically went to staff and said it's the right thing to do. It's the right person. And I'm not sure about VP. Um, the v, uh, the one thing I will tell you is that in terms of creating some negativity or negative issues, I think once if she took the VP job, if she was identified as the presumptive next nominee, they would be finding things. Opponents would be finding things for to raise as issues. So something else would have become a big a big issue that you're not seeing with Biden because I think it was always kind of clear Biden would just like Cheney was not interested in it. Mm. Well. It, it... I get the, my larger point with Hillary Clinton. Yes, she ultimately was definitely hurt by her time as Secretary of State, in my mind. But if she had managed to get through it looking 50-50 even, then she's made connections that she can point to and say, I'm better at foreign policy than whoever she's running against. Because I know all these people, whereas she wouldn't have done that with vice president. 
she wouldn't have had those connections that she was lacking as first lady and as senator that she gained from secretary of state. But then I understand what you're saying, but like the most recent historical examples of this are George Herbert Walker Bush succeeding Ronald Reagan and Al Gore winning the popular vote nationwide and having a very contested decided by the Supreme Court election with will put a huge asterisk on. But for the purposes of this conversation, let's call it a successful election for Al Gore insofar as even if you you obviously he lost, but bare minimum, you'd have to say he did pretty damn well. If you're going to do this handoff of four more years, it seems to me that the formula that is tried and true is you put that four more years person in the vice presidential slot. I don't know. Um, you could do that. Um, the the As you referenced right there, it's, it's actually been challenging for vice presidents because sometimes the American people have a hard time believing that they're actually contributing because all of these successes usually pointed towards the president. By the way, H.W. Bush, this was very true as as well. Throughout the Reagan presidency, I mean, he had a kind of small role. My sense is actually that he benefited somewhat from the um, Iran-Contra in a, in a kind of perverse way in that, uh, that that knocked the regular Reagan team down a bit, and then they needed uh, more of a fresh face, and he got involved in certain actions in the administration more in the second term, but not extremely friendly. I mean, friendly, but not extremely um, active in the Reagan administration was George W. Bush, um, H.W. Bush. And I, I think that it's always hard for the American people to see it. It happened with Gore, too. And Gore actually had obviously had to deal with, with what happened with Clinton and the impeachment and, and the Monica Lewinsky and all of that. And Florida. The state of Florida. Florida. But I think it led to Florida. I think it led to a close result that made Florida um, Florida possible. So it, it's tough to run as, as a VP. Secretary of State, um, on that note, whether it's contribution to a political campaign, well, I mean, the last one was Herbert Hoover. And I don't just say that for the obvious reason. I, I, don't, I don't think... Um, uh, oh, when I when I mentioned that he was Secretary of Commerce, but he's the last cabinet uh, person to get the to get the party's nomination, and then become president. Cabinet's not a great place to run from uh, anymore. I think it's always I think a governor is still even though um, Obama was the first senator since Kennedy to become president. Um, now we were going to get. Hillary Clinton, Obama, or McCain, so obviously that one, that historical trend was getting broken in 2008 one way or the other, Uh, but um, if uh, now to have a cabinet secretary would be the first time since 1928, and I don't think it's a great place to run from. I really think you want a governor. Problem with the Democratic Party is they're not doing so well in the gubernatorial races. No. They are. People don't want a you know, I'm I'm not sure people would want Andrew Cuomo running. You know, for the for the party, there's 50 states to worry about. You start running everybody from the Eastern Seaboard, you got you got problems. So, <laughs> oh, and then you turn CNN totally into the Clinton News Network with Chris Cuomo on there. You have Clinton and Cuomo on a ticket. Oh, come on. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I I think Mario Cuomo now there would have been an interesting uh, if he if he had entered at whatever time. But I, I just mean by that there's not a lot of Democratic gubernatorial talent to choose from. The Republicans have a lot of states. The Democrats don't. And so uh, I think there was some talk about like John Hinkerlooper in, in Colorado or what have you. But, but I mean, can you really of think names. of saying President Hinkerlooper or Hinkerlooper? That's just, that's just <laughs> a tough one. And so, but people do, the American people do like governors. They're outsiders. They're executives. They feel like presidents. They can, they can stand at the podium of a state house and kind of run something. And they can speak in a way that sounds like they're managerial, which, which by the way, is what the office is intended uh, to be. And and a lot of and in all modern campaigns, of course, we get away from that, but that's nothing new. I kind of Andrew Jackson kind of broke that one, but uh, you know, I think that still inherent in that what I still think American people understand the position to be is they tend to like governors. Anything from oh, he worked for the president, oh. I don't know. Is he? Is that person really the? Were they really making the decisions? It was the. It was the top guy, and we can't give him, you know, five, four more years. So I don't know. So, so that's a tough question as to whether to go with the VP. 
if mm. Biden had entered the race as it stood with Hillary definitely running, uh, I think I could dispatch that pretty quickly. That would have been an ugly three-way, and I just think Sanders, Hillary wins. Sanders and Biden split the votes. It would have been a great yep. thing for, for Hillary. Actually, when he didn't run, I think he set up a he set up Bernie Sanders in a way that no one's talking about, but it's, it's probably what happened. No, I, I agree with both of that. That was actually going to be my other point, which was that Hillary Clinton act, would have had an easier time had Biden run. It would have damaged her, but Sanders wouldn't have run up the score and Hillary would have a lot more wins. And so while it would have been more damaging up front to be getting attacks from both Joe Biden and Hillary or uh, Bernie Sanders at the same time last year in 2015, by March of this year, Hillary would have quickly dispatched of both the Biden campaign and the Sanders campaign. And I'm guessing the Biden campaign would have been a total paper tiger unfolded sometime around South Carolina. I think it would have yeah, been tough. If Biden had been in there, then Martin O'Malley would have wormed his way up. <laughs> no, no, no. People no. would have mistaken him for a folk singer and got him to an outdoor festival somewhere. He did have a great smile. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.